Awesome. It's good to be with you guys this morning again. Uh, if you weren't here last week, we did an introduction to 1 John. We talked about the background of John, 1 John, who wrote it, which Peter wrote it. No, John wrote it. Um, so we talked about the authorship of John. We talked about the context of John. We got into all the, the weeds, and we jumped in the, into the first four verses of 1 John. And so here we are today, picturing it as, as a road trip. And we've gone through the initial part, the preparation for our road trip. We've passed the first few landmarks. And now those things are in the rearview mirror. We don't forget them. We don't exclude them. They're points that are very important on our journey. But we are moving on, and we're going to continue in our study in 1 John. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to hop into the next few verses. We're going to be looking at 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through chapter 2, verse 6. So we're going to, not, not an easy chapter division, but uh, we'll be pro- approaching this section this morning. Before we do so, let me just pray for this particular class that the Lord would, uh, would bless it and that we'd have his grace this hour. Let me pray for us real quick. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that it gives um, insight into to life. Thank you that uh, you are the truth and that you are the word. And I, Father, I pray that your spirit would fill each and every one of our hearts this morning, that we would understand your word, and that your word would go forth, not my words, but the word of God. May you be praised, may you be made much of this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So here we are, and I'm going to divide this morning up into three main sections, just for clarity's sake. So first of all, the main section is actually found in verse 5, and we'll call it, number one, the main message. The second point I want to talk about is some misconceptions about John's message that has been addressed to the believers here. So second is the misconceptions. And then third, kind of the practical ramifications, and I'm going to call it the evidences of our walk. So we'll be going through each, each one of those sections today, and it kind of follows, John, it follows John's logical thought pattern throughout this section of the book. So let's start in verse 5. Verse 5. If we read through it, it says this. 1 John 1, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. Now, I'm reading out of the ESV just for your information. But So we have this message here. And there's a couple of questions I want to ask and actually answer uh, to start our time off together. First of all, who is him? Who is this him mentioned in this first verse? This is the message we have heard from him. Now, remember, John is the apostle who is with Christ. And so John has spent a lot of time with Christ. We discussed the history of that last, uh, last week. But John spent time with Christ, so it's natural, based on what he's already said in the text in verses 1 through 4, to say that the him he is referring to here is actually Christ. The message that he has heard from Christ, that the apostles have heard from Christ, he is now taking this message and proclaiming it to the people, to his audience. Now, what is this message? And this is what we need to talk about now. What what is John proclaiming here? Here is the message, that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. Now, God is described here as light. And and, and to understand this completely, we need to go back and look at the Bible holistically. We need to go back, actually, to the Old Testament. Now, the Old Testament view of, of God as light viewed God as knowledge and purity. This was the main view of God in the Old Testament as referring to light. We see this in Exodus uh, 13, Isaiah 8, and Isaiah 9. In Exodus 13, this is when the Israelites have constructed the tabernacle. And the tabernacle, frankly, is somewhat of an arbitrary building until something happens. God's presence inhabits that tabernacle. And when he does so, there's, there's two images that we have 
um, of God inhabiting the tabernacle, the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. So there's this illumination to the children of Israel when God is inhabiting the, the tabernacle, this illumination of fire and of cloud. And, and the word light is used frequently to describe this, this um, occurrence. We also see in Isaiah 8, chapter 20, the idea of the dawn, how God is the dawn. And it's actually flipped, and it's talking about people who don't have God, how they have no dawn. They have no, no light and no revelation. But then in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, you can turn there if you really want to, um, Isaiah is prophesying about a future Messiah that will come who will be a light to the, to the next generation. And so we see here a transition into the New Testament view of light. So here we are looking at the Old Testament. Now let's jump into the New Testament. How does the New Testament view light? And to, do, to look at this, let's go turn with me to the Gospel of John chapter 1. The Gospel of John, not 1 John. Okay, those are different. I got confused in my study at times. I, really, I thought I was in 1 John. I was actually reading John. And I was like, what in the world is going on? So John, the Gospel of John chapter 1. The Gospel of John chapter 1. And let's briefly look at the first five verses here. First five verses, and I'm going to specifically emphasize verses 4 and 5. So let me read those for us now. John 1, 4 says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The darkness is unquenchable. There's a word here. Uh, the word light in the Greek is actually the word phoos, phoos, which means to shine or to make manifest, to show forth. And John uses this in a very particular way. But John also uses two other words in, in these first five verses of the Gospel of John. He uses the word word, okay? And you see this in, in verses one through three. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And word here literally means substance or truth. And we know from what John says that this truth is from the beginning, from creation itself. And so the substance truth is from the beginning. Well, another word John uses is the word life, which literally means life, okay? And life is used in contrast to the idea of spiritual death or spiritual deadness. And we can see Paul makes specific um, points of this in Ephesians chapter 2 and Romans chapter 3. So we have word, we have life, but we also have one other word, and that is the word light. Light, the idea of phoos, to shine or make manifest, is shown here. It's this illuminating power. It's this understanding or experience of the word that leads to life. Okay? So we have the word. We have this substance, this truth. And that truth leads to life. But the question remains there, how do, you, how do we understand this truth? How do we get to life if we don't have understanding? And that's where light comes in. This, this manifestation, this shining, this illumination of the truth. So we have the word, we have truth, which is leading to life. And we get there through the light. Now those seem really disconnected, like three separate things. But in fact, John puts them all together in one package bundle. And this bundle is actually Jesus Christ. Christ is the word. He is the life, and he is the light that illumines our minds to the truth. So the idea here of life, which, which we'll go back to First John in a second, is the idea of illumined truth, illuminated truth. So God is this illuminated truth in our lives. But there's also another word, and we're going back to First John now, in case you're confused. So First John chapter 1. We know that God is this light. God is illuminated truth. But we also see something else about God. In him, 
is no darkness at all. Now, darkness in the Greek is the word skotia, which is an obscuring of the truth. It's like we have an image and we put our hand up in front of that image and we can't see it clearly. Or as if um, it's blurry, we can't understand it. It's a suppression of the uh, image that is there. And so light, light is equal to truth, and darkness is this obscuring of truth. So therefore, darkness is an obscuring of the light that is there. So what does this say about God? So perfect, let me say this, and, and I'll give us an illustration and a verse to prove it, but perfect illumination of the truth is found in fellowship with the perfect source of truth, being God. Now, if you've ever tried to read a book in the middle of the night, it's usually quite difficult. Why? Because there's not usually light. Um, sometimes you can read a book on a Kindle on your phone or something, and that's fine because you have a backlit screen. But in case you want to go back old-fashioned and you want to read an actual you know, you know, piece of paper with words on it, you need some source of light to see that. So let's say it's dark at night, and you want to read your book. It's a really good book by C.S. Lewis or something. And to, under, to see that, you have to go right next to a light. And the closer you get to that light, the, the more illuminated the, the text becomes on that page. Right? And so you get to the point, if you really want to see every detail, every detail of that text, you are going to get right next to that light so you can see everything. So you have good illumination of the, the text of the truth there. The goal here is fellowship with God. John's main purpose in this section of 1 John is that you believers would have fellowship with God. You would be close to God. And as you draw close to God, look in verse 3, we see the idea of fellowship. As you draw close to God, you will have this truth revealed to you. You will gain this spiritual illumination. And we see this in verse 3. John's purpose is that that which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, where is our fellowship? Our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. So our fellowship should be with God. John's main message, he's trying to tell people, listen, this is what fellowship with God looks like. And he does this through communicating his, the truth that God is light. So first of all, we have the main message. The main message is that God is light. But Paul is writing to people who have a lot of misconceptions about what this truth actually looks like. And I'm going to address two problems that the people, are, that his audience is running into. Problem number one, we can find in verse six, and that is the problem that people are hypocrites. People are hypocrites. There's a Latin phrase um, that people actually don't use much because we don't speak Latin, uh, but there's a Latin phrase that says acta non verba. It's pretty self-explanatory. Acta, actions, non, not. Verba comes from the, the root verbs, verbal words. So the idea is actions, not words. And it's an imperative statement. So if I could say to one of you in here, Acta non verba, okay? That's me saying actions, not words. Uh, growing up, I, I grew up in, in rural New Hampshire, and we had these Kirby vacuum cleaner salesmen come to our house every now and then. I don't know if you ever had them before. Really nice vacuums. We couldn't afford them, but it was really cool to have them come to our house. I don't know why they chose like rural New Hampshire. It doesn't make any sense because we're so spread out. But um, we, we'd have these salesmen come into our house, and they'd sit down in our living room, and give us all the statistics about the Kirby vacuum cleaner, and they're pretty cool, okay? You know, they tell you the, the, the suction power, the, the capacity of the bag, they tell you the, um, the noise on it, uh, and all these things, the efficiency of it, and they talk to you for like 30 minutes about how cool the vacuum was. And you got to a point, you're like, would you please just do something with it? 
just, just show me how to use the vacuum or demonstrate how it works. And they did, and it was really cool. Um, and that's the idea here. You can, you can talk and talk and talk about something for so long, but actions are actually more important than your words, right? In the context of 1 John, in this verse here, verse 6, John is calling out people, calling out these believers who were not living in fellowship with God. Their actions were not reflecting the truth that they claimed to live by. And, and John gives them a very harsh warning. And his harsh warning is this. If you say, if we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we, we lie and we, we practice not the truth. And another side point here, I find it interesting that John uses the collective word we. He's very personal in the way he addresses these, this group of believers. And he, uses, he, he almost includes himself in this statement that, that we lie and we don't practice the truth when we don't have fellowship with him. So we're left with the, the reality here that, that people are living in hypocrisy, but there is an alternative that John suggests in verse 9. So continue reading, and we're following John's logical thought pattern here. Verse 7, but, contrast here, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. And so there's a promise here that John gives. He confronts the believers on something, but he leaves them with a promise, a truth, that if you walk in the light, if you have fellowship with God, then you have fellowship with others in cleansing from sin. And we'll digest that in a second. But there's a new word introduced here that I think is important we understand, and that's the word walk. Now, walk doesn't necessarily mean a stroll down the road. It doesn't necessarily mean a walk on the treadmill or a hike up Ben Lomond. All right, walk is the idea of all around, encompassing, occupying yourself with close fellowship. And so walking in the light is to have close fellowship with God, who is the source of that light, who is the source of that perfect, illuminated truth. So if you do this, it's an if-then statement. If you walk in the light, if you have close fellowship with God, you occupy yourself with who God is and God himself, then what is the result? Two things. Number one, you have fellowship with others. Fellowship with others. What does that mean? Um, in, in major league sports, there are a lot of individuals from various different backgrounds. Ethnic backgrounds, religious backgrounds, socioeconomic backgrounds, and they all come together under one purpose. Well, that's the goal, at least. They want to come together for the one purpose of either baseball, soccer, volleyball, basketball, whatever it may be. And the interesting thing is they come together not because of their backgrounds, not because of what they've done previously, but because of that one singular thing that unifies them all, is that particular sport that they're playing. John here is saying, in the same way, that if you have fellowship with God, and 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 we all have this fellowship with God, inevitably, we will all begin to have fellowship with each other as well. And that's, I think, the really interesting thing about church, too. We come together as believers who all have fellowship with God. And as we all have fellowship with God, and as we are all trying to make much of God, then at the same time, we have fellowship with each other. That's the really unique thing about church, about gathering together as a group of believers, because our commonality is in God, our fellowship with him. So if we walk in the light, we have fellowship with God. But second, we also have this cleansing from our sin. And this is the idea of a progressive cleansing from sin. If you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 9 really quick. Hebrews chapter 9. We can kind of see this, this play out in a, different, in a different area of the Bible. And the context here is um, 
discussing Christ as our great high priest, the one who is, has given us redemption through the blood of Jesus Christ, through himself. So let's look at verse 14, and we'll discuss this a little bit. Verse 14 says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So here we see a, a work happening, a transformation taking place. And we understand, because of what we talked about last week, um, that as believers, we have this spirit indwelling us. The Holy Spirit is a part of us now. And so as the Holy Spirit indwells us, the Holy Spirit is working inside of us as we give him space to work, as we allow and foster a relationship with the Holy Spirit. And the process looks like this. It looks like, like it says in Hebrews 9.14, it's purifying our conscience from dead works, from who we were before Christ, and turning us into something different, turning us into a vessel that is fit and apt to serve and worship God better. So that, that is the work of the Holy Spirit, and it's this idea of progressive cleansing. It's not necessarily a one-time thing that, bam, all of a sudden, I'm perfect and I have no sin in my life. It's a progressive cleansing that the Holy Spirit is constantly doing in our hearts. So it's a striving to serve God, knowing that the Holy Spirit is progressively cleansing us. So that is the first problem that John addresses. John addresses hypocrisy. But John's second problem he addresses is this, that people are saying that they are perfect and that they're sinless. And we see this in verse 8 and verse 10. Let me turn back to 1 John, make sure I'm not in Hebrews. Verse 8 says, if we sin, if, sorry, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. There's, um, I, actually, I don't, I don't know if you've ever had an expectation about something something in your life that you wanted it to look a certain way. Uh, maybe it was an idea online that you found you wanted to make something, and you had an expectation for what that was supposed to look like. The reality often hits us like a, like a truck. Um, and we're here, we, we make whatever product we wanted to make, and we realize that it doesn't conform to our previous expectations, unfortunately. I had this unfortunate experience with a pizza oven last summer. It was really bad. Um, but the, the expectations we have are often shattered by the reality of the situation. And this is the expectation that the people had. Their expectation was that they were sinless, right? We read this in verse 8. We say we have no sin, expectation. Guess what? The reality hits us. You deceive yourself. We deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. Look down at verse 10 again. Expectation. If we say we have no sin, here's our expectation. Guess what? We make him a liar. The reality is, you think you're sinless, but you're a liar, and you're deceived. So our expectations are often shattered by reality. And the reality is that we're sinners, and we see this, as I mentioned before, in passages like Ephesians 2 or Romans 3. Now, why is John addressing this topic in this, in this specific way? We talked about Gnosticism last time. I'm not, not going to go into a uh, more description of that this time. But most likely, this was an issue in the church where people were thinking they were above the law in some sort of way, and that they weren't sinners anymore. And this goes back to Gnostic tendencies, the idea of there was a separation between spirit and body. How I'm saved in my spirit, and because I'm saved in my spirit, I can essentially do whatever I want in my body. All right, this is an oversimplification. But I'm saved in my spirit, I can do whatever I want. In Albert Barnes's commentary in 1 John, he says, some have supposed that the allusion here is to the sect of the Nicolaitans, and to the view that which they maintained particularly that nothing was forbidden to the children of God under the gospel, and that in the freedom conferred on Christians, they were at liberty to do whatever they pleased. Now, John specifically addressed this in 
in uh, Revelation chapter 2, so I encourage you, if you want further study in this, to go there. But the idea is that because we're saved, you can do whatever you want now. And John is very quickly countering that idea, saying that, no, you are sinful. Don't say you're sinless and do whatever you want. You are a sinner. That is the reality here. But we're left with that harsh reality, but sandwiched between the harsh reality of sin in verses 8 and 10, sin, sin, right in the middle is this wonderful promise of verse 9. Read verse 9 with me. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and he's just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And here we have another if-then statement. So if you do what? If you confess your sin, the confession is made of your sin and repentance, what is the result? God is faithful, meaning he will do what he promised to do, and he is just to forgive us of our sins. The idea of just is this, just to Christ, as Christ is the one on whom our sins rest. So, so God is just in the sense that when he looks at us in our sin, because of the work of Christ, he doesn't necessarily see us as the sinners we are, but instead God looks at us through Christ-colored lenses. It's almost as if you put red sunglasses on. When you put red sunglasses on, everything becomes red. Because of the work of Christ in our life, when God looks at us, he sees us through Christ-colored lenses. Now there's the idea of propitiation here, which we'll, we'll look into in, verses, in, in verse 2 of chapter 2. But let's keep moving through our passage here. So let's look at chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, John is speaking here, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Let's stop right there. Um, John is beginning to address these people in a very personal way again. And we see it's personal because of the way he addresses the people. My little children. In fact, he uses the, word, the, the phrase, my little children, 11 other times in this letter. Um, a couple times in, in chapter 2, a few times in chapter 3, once in chapter 4, and once in chapter 5. So he's very personally writing to this group of believers saying, my, my little children, the goal here is that you don't sin. All right? that, that is the expectation, the goal. But the reality of that is that you will sin. And so he follows up with the truth. The truth is that Jesus is your advocate, your propitiation for that sin, your propitiation with God. And we see the, the, the very word propitiation used in verse 2. He is a propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. You probably heard this illustration before, but, but bear with me. Imagine you were in a courtroom, okay? Put yourself, just you, just you. You've committed a very heinous crime that is punishable by years and years in prison. There you are in the courtroom, walking in, surrounded by men and women in orange jumpsuits, law enforcement security all over the place. You are in that courtroom, you're scared, you're nervous of the future, you're nervous of the consequences that are about to face you. The judge is standing up, on the po up behind a desk, ready to demand a verdict of you, to give you a verdict. You walk into the courtroom and you don't have money to afford an attorney. Now, according to the US judicial system, one is appointed for you without charge. So there you are sitting there, scared, nervous of your future, and in walks your attorney through a side door. You watch your attorney come in, he sits down next to you, puts his briefcase down, pulls out some paper, and then the hearing begins, the court begins session. All right, now over here you have the prosecutor. 
who is telling the judge all the facts of your case, how bad you are, how bad your crime was, how, how much they should convict you, give them the full weight of the law. And then your attorney gets up, and your attorney counters all that. Your advocate, your legal advocate, gets up and talks on your behalf to the judge. Okay? He tells the judge why you messed up and why you shouldn't have the full penalty of the law. Now, in the end, because of the crime that you committed and because of the just judge that is behind the desk up there, the judge has to convict you for the, the, the full amount of the crime. And so you're convicted. Your attorney has advocated for you. Your legal, legal advocate has talked on your behalf. But now your attorney does something very interesting. And your attorney goes up and he says, Judge, I know you've just convicted this individual, but I want, to, I want us to switch places. Okay. I want you to put the guilt, put the punishment, not on, not on my client here, but on me instead. And that's what the attorney does. And you watch it in awe as your attorney takes your place for that sin. And so you go from being this convicted, guilty individual committing a heinous crime to someone who is now free because of what your attorney has just done for you. He's gone from being your advocate to your propitiation. This is what Christ has done for us. Christ has essentially walked in and advocated, and we read this in Hebrews, he's advocated for us to the Father, pleading on our behalf. He pleads for us. But then he does something more. He is our propitiation, meaning he takes the full brunt of our sin and puts it on himself. I think we have that illustration in the courtroom. And so that when, when the judge looks at my attorney, when the judge looks at, at my lawyer there, he doesn't necessarily see, when he looks at the crime, he doesn't see me. He sees my attorney instead because the attorney is in my place, right? So, so the same with Christ. When God looks at my sin, my guilt, he doesn't see Andrew Fletcher or insert your name, he sees Christ. Like I said before, he sees us through Christ-colored lenses. And that's the reality of the situation, that Christ is our advocate and our propitiation. This wonderful truth in 1 John. Now with this, with this as the foundation that John has laid, he, he bumps in to a couple other applications, very concrete applications, evidences of how we ought to live now with all of this in our mind. In our, and the applications he gives in verse 3 are, are these, that you should demonstrate that you have genuinely come to him by keeping his commandments. Because of all that Christ has done for us, because of who Christ is, because of your sin, because of the transactions that have taken place, because of all of that, now, Christian, verse 3, demonstrate that you have genuinely come to him by keeping his commandments. And it says in verse 3, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Void, verse 4, avoid hypocrisy. Whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So John is saying, avoid hypocrisy. Live correctly. Verse 5, genuine believers will genuinely show obedience and devotion to God. Although we already know, because of what we've talked about, that this is not a perfect, we're not going to do this perfectly. In verse 6, the idea of hypocrisy again. Say what you're going to do and then do it. If you are in Christ, you have fellowship with God, then, then show that. And John is very clear. He's very clearly addressing this to, his, his believer, to the believers here. And so the idea that John is making here is that you evidence your walk, evidence your fellowship with God. And so in conclusion this morning, kind of running through all the information that we've been through, God is light, right? God is the source of perfect illuminated truth. 
And to have access to this perfect truth, you need to closely attach, to have close fellowship with the source of perfect truth, God himself. Show that you are a Christian. Don't just say it. Let your actions reflect the Spirit's constant working in your heart, making from, from getting rid of the previous sin in your life and turning you into a vessel that is fit and apt to serve and love God. But at the same time, don't say that you are sinless. Although the expectation is that you are perfect and, and you don't have any sin in your life, and hey, maybe you're actually a half-decent human being, the reality of us the, re the reality of this is that you are utterly sinful. But even though that is a harsh reality, the wonderful promise married to that reality is that God is faithful and just to forgive you of that sin that is crippling your spiritual life right now and causing you not to have fellowship with God. This forgiveness is not a result of you, but is a result of Christ, the one who not only advocates on our behalf, but the one who literally took the place for our sin so that when God sees us when God sees our sin, he doesn't see us clearly as the sinners we are, but instead sees us through Christ-colored lenses, as Christ is a propitiation for our sin. Now, this work of Christ and the Spirit in our lives should compel us to a sort of action, a very different action, that we would show our faith, that we would not just talk about our faith, that we would avoid hypocrisy, and that we would know that even though we try to live perfect, sinless lives and utterly fail, that our faith is predicated on the wonderful truth that Christ is the perfect propitiation for our sins and that God will faithfully and justly forgive us of the sins that are crippling our spiritual lives right now. And that is a wonderful, wonderful truth that we can rest in, that Christ is our great propitiation. So believers, faithfully walk, faithfully fellowship with God. Show it and then do it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who is our great propitiation, who is our substitute for sin. Father, you have done a wonderful work. The gospel is a wonderful truth that, that saves us from the harsh reality of sin. So Father, I, I pray that you would make this truth apparent to us as we go about our lives this week. Would, you, would you, your Holy Spirit work in our hearts to change us from our previous way of sin and change us into vessels that are fit to honor and love you better. Lord, do that work in our lives. Holy Spirit, do a work in our lives, please. I pray that the rest of our service today would be honoring and glorifying to you, and that we would make, be making much of God today, that we would be making much of you. Father, thank you for all you've done for us. Thank you for the gift of Christ and the gospel. We pray all of this in Jesus' name.